0: Good morning, everybody. My name is... (laughs) Wow, what a great response. You guys are like, got some energy this morning. That's nice. Let it go. Hey, uh, my name is Josh Smith, for those of you that may not know me. And I'm the youth pastor here. And before we get started with the sermon today, I actually have a quick 412 Youth Ministry commercial. It's a shameless plug, so just deal with me for one minute, okay? As of uh, June 11th, we actually have some really exciting news. June 11th, we're going to be making a little restructure to the youth ministry. Uh, Currently, we've been having our middle schoolers meet uh, during our 1045 adult service upstairs, and we've been having our high schoolers meet on Sunday nights. And starting June 11th, they're actually going to be meeting together at the same time during Sunday nights, meaning we'll no longer have uh, middle school services during the morning services and all of our Uh, Sunday services will be during Sunday nights. Uh, And really the two main reasons why we're doing this, well, we have a lot of reasons, but the two main reasons, number one is we wanted our middle school students to uh, be able to feel more comfortable just outreaching in their community, inviting their friends to church. It's a little bit of a tough swing to invite an unchurched middle school kid to come to a 1045 service when they normally don't wake up till 12 because they're playing Minecraft till two in the morning. Um, So, that's the first reason. Uh, The second reason is uh, we really do have a heart for our middle schoolers to be even more connected with uh, the uh, church as a whole. And we just thought it'd be a great idea uh, for middle schoolers to be a part of these uh, adult services. You know, uh, 50% of students after high school that are a part of church uh, walk away from church. And so, we thought it'd be awesome to get them started early and being more involved with the adult services. Uh, during Sunday mornings. But enough of the commercial. Commercial's over, so it's over. It's all right. Uh, But let's get started with the sermon. Uh, But before we do that, let's pray together. God, I thank you so much that um, we can come here and just remember you, that we could uh, just think about you, hear about you, sing about you. And God, I just ask in these next 35 minutes or so, that you would just encourage people's hearts, that you would just uh, open them up to how much you love them, how much you care for them, and the purpose that you have for their lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, well, I want to start off my message with a question today. Who here loves pie? Who here loves pie? Come on. Who here loves pie? Okay, if you don't love pie, you're crazy, okay? Because pie is amazing. I love pie. In fact, my family, uh, we're actually famous for pies. I don't know if you knew this, but my grandparents, they have like this amazing old family recipe. It's been in the family uh, for generations and I love it. You know, I love their strawberry pie. It's got Graham cracker crust, and when you just eat it, it's like you're going to heaven. Um, you know, you got the chocolate chip pecan pie, oh my goodness. It tastes so good, but it makes you want to be knocked out like five minutes later, cause it's just, you know, it's just so heavy. But then you got my favorite, okay, you got the banana cream pie, alright? I love that pie so much. I'll have three pieces of it the day of, I'll save it for breakfast and have three more the next morning, okay? It's just, it's, it's that good. And a lot of us here, I think we love pie. Uh, But I think if we're honest, a lot of us don't enjoy eating a good dose of humble pie. I think if we're really honest, naturally, we don't like to eat a dose of humble pie. I think a lot of us in here, we know that humility is a good thing. Humility is a virtuous thing. It's a moral thing. It's something that people give thumbs up for. But I think when it comes down to it, when we're really honest with ourselves... Naturally, we don't like a good dose of humble pie. Because naturally, I think we like to feel like people view us highly, not lowly. And so I think humility, although it is a very good thing, oftentimes it's something that can be avoided in our lives. And last week, Pastor Chris, he continued in our series we've been calling Dare to be Daniel. We've been going through the book of Daniel. And he was in chapter 4 last week in his message was called Dare to Be Humble. And in chapter 4, we looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, and we looked at how King Nebuchadnezzar had this enormous amount of pride and how he was so prideful against God that God actually had to take away his kingdom from him. And we read this amazing and honestly kind of interesting scene where King Nebuchadnezzar not only loses his kingship, but it says that he was given the mind of an animal and starts to wander around the fields as if he was an animal. God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's only when King Nebuchadnezzar looked back to God, lost his pride, and gained humility that his kingdom was restored to him. That's what Pastor Chris talked about last week in Dare to be Humble. And this week, we're in Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about Dare to be Humble, part 2. Dare to Be Humble part 2 in Daniel chapter 5. And so what I'd love to do before we read Daniel chapter 5 together, if it's okay with you, I'd love to just set the stage for us before we read into Daniel chapter 5 so we kind of have an idea of what's going on here. Last week, as I said, we looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel chapter 5 that we'll be reading today, it's actually a 23-year gap. So from chapter 4 to chapter 5, it's a a 23-year gap. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we read about last week, is actually dead now. He's no longer living. And now the king of Babylon is his grandson, King Belshazzar. And King Belshazzar, unfortunately, did not learn from his granddad's mistakes. He's kind of inherited uh, the family pride. He, as we look in the beginning of this chapter instead of being humble, has set himself up as being prideful. It says that he actually he throws this huge party where they're, they're drinking and they're doing all these things. And mind you, this isn't like a casual drinking party where it's like, hey, let's you know, have one wine glass, you know, Napa wine tasting. No, this is like a drinking party. Like they are like going crazy. And not only is he throwing this huge party, but the Bible says that he took... Goblets from the Lord's temple for them to throw the party with. So they're using sacred, holy goblets from God's temple, things that are holy, things that aren't used uh, for as fun, and he's taking them and using it to throw his party. And when he's doing this, he's basically actually challenging God. He's basically saying, Bring it on. I don't respect you. I am the boss. I am the true king. And so. He kind of disrespects God, and he, he takes this prideful stance against God. And this is when the story gets really, really, really interesting. King Belshazzar, he's throwing this huge party. He's totally defying God. And the Bible says that this hand appears by a wall. A hand, not a human body, just a hand Okay? And this hand just starts writing this message. And it's so cool. I love the Bible. The Bible says that King Belshazzar, his face literally turns pale and his kneel knees start to knock. Okay, so he has this, you know, completely prideful attitude, defiance against God, this just hand. Just, just imagine this with me for a second. A, a hand just appears in the room. It starts writing on the wall. That would freak me out, all right? If he peed his pants, I wouldn't blame him, okay? So we have this crazy scene where he's defying God. The hand writes a message on the wall. And once they see the rest, message has been written, he tries to figure it out. He has no idea what the message means. He has no idea what it means. So what the king starts to do, King Belshazzar, he starts to call in all of... The kingdom's magicians and saying, hey, can you guys figure this out? Do you guys know what this means? Nobody can figure it out. Nobody has any clue what is going on. And so the queen, which is actually his mother, comes rushing in and says, hey, listen, there's this one guy. His name's Daniel. This is when our man Daniel comes in. He says, he helped out your granddad a whole lot. Whenever your granddad had a really big thing that he couldn't understand, whenever there was a, a problem that needed wisdom, that needed insight, Daniel was there and he just knew what to do. God was with him. So King Belshazzar he calls Daniel in and he says, Daniel, if you're able to figure out this message that this really creepy hand just wrote on the wall, if you're able to tell me what it means, then I am going to make you third in the kingdom. I'm going to just hook you up with all kinds of power. I'm going to give you a nice house. I'm going to give you all of these great things. And so that's where we find ourselves as we read this passage together. In Daniel chapter 5, we're going to read verses 17 through 31. It's Daniel's response to King Belshazzar when he's asked him, to interpret this message. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. If you don't, it's alright, all the verses today will be on the screen and also in your bulletin. Let's read together. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in His hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, He sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is when He explains what the message means. This is the inscription that is written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parzin. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age 62. So today from that story, we're going to be talking about daring to be humble. And today I just want to share with you guys four points on humility that we learned from this story. So let's just get right into it. Here's the first one is that humility means, you know, you are hopeless without God's help. I'll say it again. Humility means, you know, you are hopeless without God's help. Last week, Pastor Chris, he looked into Daniel chapter 4 and we looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and how he was prideful and how God had to humble him before he could look to God. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, we read it last week, but I want us to recap it because Daniel actually brings up this event when he confronts King Belshazzar. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it says, as King Nebuchadnezzar is on his roof of his building, he's overlooking his whole kingdom and how awesome and how big his kingdom is. And he says this, he says, Is not this Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar, what he's saying is, is Look how awesome my kingdom is, and look how awesome I am, because I'm the one that built it. It was my strength, it was my doing, and it's for my glory. Look at me. And when Daniel confronts King Belshazzar, he cites this event. He actually brings up what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar. It happened 20 years ago. Why does he do that? Why does he bring up this event when confronting King Belshazzar? Well, he does it because when Daniel brings up this event, he's basically saying, you didn't learn from your granddad. He lived a prideful life where he thought that he was the man, where he thought that he had the power, where he thought that he could get it all done for his glory, for his pleasure, and you didn't learn from him. You've done the same thing. In fact, you've done worse. And we see this in Daniel 5, verses 18 and 20, Daniel is talking to King Belshazzar and he addresses him saying, Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. So it's important that we get this here in the beginning. He says, The Most High God gave King Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom. Do you see the exact contrast and how opposite it is? King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, look at my power and look at the kingdom I've established. And Daniel is saying to King Belshazzar, God gave him the kingdom. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's saying, I earned. But God is saying, no, you didn't earn it. You didn't earn the kingdom. You didn't make the kingdom. I gave you the kingdom. It's completely opposite. So what do we learn about humility from this? Well, we learn that when you have pride, you have no need for God. Because when you're prideful, you don't need God. you got it covered. you you, you got a plan, and you're confident that your plan is going to cover all the bases You got it completely under control. Pride means that you have it all covered. You got it all under control. But what humility is, is humility is the exact opposite. Humility means you know you are hopeless without God's help. I'll never forget it. Uh, When I was in eighth grade, my family and I, we went on a camping trip. And it was a really fun camping trip. We had a great time. And I remember right by our campsite, there was this river that all the kids loved to... uh, play around. And there was this part, if you went further down the river, the current got a lot stronger and even a little bit more dangerous. And naturally, uh, being the eighth grade boy that I was, I went to that part of the river to uh, play in, even though I was told not to. And so me and my brother, you know, we're hanging out, playing, and I I jump into the uh, rougher part of the river. And sure enough, I start to drown and go down the river. And I'm like, help me. You know, and luckily my parents were there. And so my stepdad, he sees my eighth grade stupid stealth drowning in the river and he runs to save my drowning butt. And so my stepdad, he runs into the river, he pulls me out and he saves me. Now, if I'm being completely honest with you, I was completely and utterly hopeless and helpless without him. I was a weak little 8th grade boy. I weighed about 80 pounds at the time. Okay, I had no chance of getting out there. I was completely and utterly helpless if my stepfather did not come into the river and pull me out. In fact, I actually have a picture um, of the after, of what, there it is, right there. Yeah, <laughs> that was after he pulled me out. Uh, he didn't actually have to do mouth-to-mouth, but... uh There's a little picture. And there's my brother in the background who's always, you know, getting the photo bomb in. But why do I share this story? I share this story because I think it's such a good picture of the reality in all of our lives. Because in reality, if we really look at things as we are, we all are utterly hopeless. We all are utterly helpless without God's intervention in our lives, without God helping us in our lives. And that's what humility is. Humility is realizing that you are hopeless unless God helps you. So how do we get this kind of humility? How do we get this kind of humility where we begin to realize that we are hopeless without God's help? Well, I think the first step is we begin to see God as he is and we begin to see ourselves as we are. I think the only way we will ever have this kind of humility is we really begin to see what our humanity means and we begin to really see what God's godness means. I just made that word up, by the way, but it works. Okay, when we begin to see how we have limited power, how we are not perfect and how we are not perfect, always loving, but how God is all-powerful, how God is all-perfect, how God is always loving, when we begin to see that God has never sinned, but we sin pretty regularly, when we begin to see how God is who He is and who we are, then we will begin to have humility. When it really comes down to it, humility only happens when we realize that we're all just sinners and need need of God's grace. I'll say that again because it's really important. The only way you'll ever have humility in your life is if you realize that you're a sinner just like everybody else and you're in need of God's grace to be saved. Because that's where true humility starts. It's knowing that just like me when I was in 8th grade, we're all drowning in a river. We have no help within ourselves. It's only if somebody outside of ourselves comes to save us and do the thing that we could never do ourselves. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did on the cross? Isn't what the gospel is all about? The fact that God knew that we were sinking in our sin and He came to save us by dying for our sins on the cross. And that's where humility starts. It starts with knowing that you can't save yourself, that you're drowning and you can't get out. So what does this humility look like in everyday life? What does it look like to practically live out this humility in everyday life? Well, firstly, it looks like becoming a Christian. If you haven't become a Christian, that's the first step realizing that you humbly need God to save you, that you need His forgiveness, that you need His love and grace to change your life. But secondly, if you've already become a Christian, how does this humility look like? Well, it looks like how you start your day. How do you start your days? Do you start your days in humility or pride? What do I mean by that? Do you start your days knowing you need God for your day? Or do you start your days getting your coffee and running out the door to work, never even thinking about God? There are many other ways. How about at work? When you have a big deadline coming up, when there seems to be a big problem going on, do you just try to handle it yourself? Or do you realize that you are hopeless and helpless without God? Do you invite Him into those decisions? those big choices, those big family decisions, those big personal decisions, how you start your day, do you humbly come before God knowing that if you don't have Him and if you don't involve Him in whatever you're doing, it's just going to be hopeless. You see, the life of a Christian is a life marked by humility. It's a life marked by continual reliance on Him through humbly knowing that without God we are nothing. Here's the second point. Is that humility is meant to be in your heart. Humility is meant to be in your heart. Daniel chapter 5 verses 22 through 23, Daniel, he continues his rebuke to King Belshazzar and He says this to him, he says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. I think this is so important to recognize. King Belshazzar, he knew what happened to his granddad, King Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that his granddad was prideful and that he got kicked on his can. And it wasn't until he recognized God that he was brought back into being king. He knew that whole story. He knew about it. He says it right here. He says, though you knew all of this, but does that stop him from being prideful? Does that stop him from defying God? No. It doesn't. He knew about God. He knew that God was more powerful than him. He had heard stories. Somebody in his family. yet." He still didn't have humility in his heart. He had it in his head, but he didn't have the humility before God in his heart. I think this is a sobering warning for us. That you could know and that we could know a lot about humility before God, but not actually have it in our hearts. You see, humility isn't about what you know, but it's about who you are. Because here's the deal. You could go to church every Sunday and be the most prideful person in the world. You could even know Bible verses and quote Scripture and not be humble. You could go to church since you were a little child and have zero humility in your heart. It's not about what you know. It's about who you are, what's in your heart. Are you truly humble before God? So how do you know that you have a humble heart? how do you how do you how do you gauge that the bible says in philippians chapter 4 verses 3 through 4 it says in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you looking to the interests of others what this verse is basically saying is is one of the practical ways that humility is shown is through you Putting other people's needs, putting other people's interests above your own, even when it hurts. So if you want to know if you have a humble heart, why don't you ask yourself that question? How often do I put other people's interests above my own? In fact, maybe take it one step further. How often do I put other people's needs above my own when it's to my own expense, when it's at my inconvenience, when it's painful for me? I uh, recently went on a, a really long trip actually over to Europe uh, with my wife and her family. And luckily, her family offered to pay for us because we're picking up her sister. She was studying abroad over there. So when they offered, we were like, uh, yeah, sure, we'll go to Italy and stuff our faces with pizza for a week and gelato. And so, But one of the things I think it's always funny is when you have a really long airplane ride and you land at your destination, I think if you want to figure out somebody's character and whether or not somebody's humble, just go on a really long airplane ride with them and then see what they do when the flight's over and everybody stands up to leave. Okay, it's like literally the depths of everyone's heart is revealed when the flight is over and people stand up and, you know, there's always that one guy that's like in the very back, but he takes his bag in the beginning and just, you know, plows through the aisle and doesn't care that, you know, he's skipping literally every single person in line. And I think that's such a great picture of what humility is. Humility is in one sense allowing everybody to pass you along in the aisle, to take the back seat, to put other people's interests above your own. I think one of our biggest excuses, and I honestly could be guilty uh, myself of this, but I think one of our biggest excuses um, as a whole to not put other people's interests ahead of our own is actually our own busyness. I think it's very easy for us maybe sometimes to get so caught up in our own agendas so caught up on our own schedules, so caught up in our own dreams, our own goals, and we get so busy and so wrapped up in them that we never take time to put other people's interests above our own because we're too busy doing what, what we feel like we should do. And honestly, if we're being honest, that's pride. That's not humility, that's pride. Because what is that saying? That's saying, you know what? And there's nothing wrong with being busy, by the way. There is a way to be busy and to glorify God. But there is a sense where we could get ourselves so busy and so caught up in our own plans and our own agenda that we never take the time to put other people first. And that's the very heart of humility, putting people above ourselves. You see, because you cannot be humble and never put people above yourselves. That's like saying you'd be a meat-eating vegetarian or a fighting pacifist. It's just not, it's not possible. It's not possible at all. You cannot be humble and then never put people first. Humility means putting other people first. And so you can ask yourself this morning, is humility something that's in my head or is humility something that's in my heart? Is it something I've heard about? Is it something I even think good of? Or is it something that I actually have in my heart before God and before other people? Here's the third point on humility. is That humility worships a God that can't be controlled. Humility worships a God that cannot be controlled. Daniel 5, verse 23. Daniel, he continues to rebuke King Belshazzar. And he says, instead... You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank from them. He says, You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. See, King Belshazzar he directly challenges God by taking the goblets from the temple and using them for his party. He directly confronts and challenges God. And then he takes it in either, another step further. And it says that during the party, he praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wooden stone. Gods that cannot see and understand. Gods that aren't even real. They're not gods. They're just fake gods. You see, King Belshazzar, he didn't humbly worship a god that couldn't be controlled. He pridefully worshipped gods that could be controlled. You see, that's the essence of pride. The essence of pride is being able to seek control. The essence of pride is worshipping gods that you could earn. Worshipping gods that you can mold. Worshipping gods that you can control. And that's exactly what King Belshazzar does here. He doesn't seek to worship a God that can't be controlled. Why? Because he doesn't want to do that. Because then the God might actually be able to tell him what to do. The God might actually be able to tell him what his life is supposed to be about. He'd much rather worship God that he can control and mold. And so that's the essence of pride is control. And the essence of humility is to admit that God has control and you don't. Humility is admitting that we actually have no control over our lives, but that God does, that He holds all things together. Now when I think we read verses like this and we hear of people worshiping false gods of gold and wood and iron and stone and all those things, they kinda of like read past that and we're like, Oh yeah, we don't do that nowadays, you know. Uh we don't we don't do that. That's just that's not that's not as normal for us in American culture. It is available it is here but it's not not as common but i think we shouldn't move too fast when we see things like that because i think today in our culture there are other kinds of false gods maybe there are other areas of our lives where we seek to worship things that we can control maybe there's something in your life other than god that you've been worshipping and it's something that you've been able to earn something you've been able to feel something that you've been able to control i know uh, just for me personally, one of the things that I could seek to worship out instead of God, that's something that I could feel and control and earn, is just even personal success in, in ministry and in life. You know, wanting people to think highly of me, wanting people to think that I'm successful, wanting people to think that I'm a good preacher, wanting people to think that I'm a good pastor, wanting people to think that I'm that guy that's just you know, he's doing great and we're just so proud of him and he's a great leader and just oh man, he's Josh you know, he's a great guy. That's mine. That's the thing that I deal with. That's the false God that I seek to earn. The the, the part and area of my life that I like to control and it's something that God is working on in my heart and He's slowly but surely allowing it to get out of my life. What's that area for you? Maybe it's your career, like it is for me. Maybe that's the thing that you run after to worship, something that you can earn and control. Maybe it's a career, maybe it's your children and wanting them to be the most successful people ever. And so you just do everything you can and you just, you know, have your, parent, your, your children sign up for, you know, all the best sports teams and all the best dance programs and all the high academic honor classes so that they can go and be, live a successful life that you think they should live. There are all so many things that we run after, things that we could earn and control that we worship. Why do we do this? why do we why do we seek after these things? I think because deep down, I think in the heart of our hearts, there may be some areas where we don't want to worship a God that can be that can't be controlled A lot of the times, I think there's parts in our hearts where we want to have little many me gods that we can control. maybe there's a part in your heart if you're willing to be honest here, where maybe You wish that you could be a little bit more in control and God could be a little bit less in control. If I'm being honest, that's in my heart sometimes. I wish that I could call the shots, that I could have the power to do what I feel like needed to be done. But the fact is, is when we try to get in control, when you try to grab control of your life, it only ends up in discouragement and depression because the reality is the control that we try to get is a control that we will never actually attain. Because as humans, we don't have control. And the moment we humbly admit that we serve a God that can't be controlled, and we have a God that can't be tamed, the moment we admit that and just give up control and say, okay, God, I'm done. The moment we do that, the moment we become humble, is actually the moment we become most free. Isn't that funny how that works? The moment we give up control is the moment we actually become most free. I think some of you maybe needed to hear that today, is that you don't need to try to control it all. You don't need to try to to climb the ladder, to to call all the shots. Give up control to God. Humbly admit that it's not you. That's when you'll find the most freedom. Here's the fourth and final point of humility. Humility. Is that you must humble yourself before God, or he will do it for you. This is probably the most intense and harsh points of today, but it's a true one. Is that you must humble yourself before God, or he will do it for you. The final verses that we read earlier, Daniel he begins to interpret the message that was written on the wall, and he reads out the meaning of the message. And what is the meaning of the message? The meaning of the message is, King Belshazzar, uh, your days are basically numbered. Your kingdom is going to be completely destroyed. And within the very night of Daniel interpreting the message for him, what happens? He gets killed. His kingdom gets wiped out. And it's all just, it's done. Why is this? This happens because Belshazzar didn't humble himself before God. And so in the end, God humbled him for him. And this is a warning for us today as well. You see, because there's a time in all of our lives where we will become humble. Everybody in this room, everybody in this world will become humble at one point or another. It's just your decision on whether you will become humble in this life or at the end of your life when you meet God face to face. All of us will be humbled at some point. It's just your choice. Will it be now Or will it be later? Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, Jesus says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, God, He wants every single person to be saved. He wants every single person in the world to know Him, to be saved by Him, to have a relationship with Him. But the problem is, there is judgment at the end of each person's life. There is an expiration date to that offer of being to, being able to humble yourself before God in this life. That's what this life is all about. It's God giving us an opportunity to know Him, to humble ourselves before Him and say, I need you. I want to have a relationship with you. Now, let's be honest. I think we live in a very, I mean, it's just Realistic. We live in the Bay Area. It's one of the most wealthy places in the world. One of the most successful places in the world. One of the busiest places in the world. And I think one of the most common reasons why people don't go to church, and one of the most common reasons why people aren't Christians, is because they just don't see the need. I've heard so many times people say, and I've asked them, you know, why don't, why don't you go to church? Why aren't you a Christian? I just don't see the need. Because we live in a culture that we have so much that we think we have it all when we really don't. Uh, The other week I was at the airport and uh, we were beside this guy and we, you know, had a two-hour layover and so him and I, we just started talking and getting to know one another and it was a great conversation and we came to realize that we actually both lived in the Bay Area and I got to know him a little better and found out he was a a doctor at, at Stanford and... He was a very high-level uh, skin doctor that's doing all this amazing experimental work. He has you know, all sorts of millionaires and billionaires offering to fund his projects, to do all this amazing research. He's the smartest of the smart, the most successful of the successful in his industry. And him and I, we continued to talk, and we began to talk about God and, and faith. And, and there came a point in our conversation, because he had told me he... Grew up in church, but left the church, and there came a point in our conversation where I asked him. I said, "So why, why why did you walk away? Why aren't why aren't you involved in church anymore? Why don't why aren't you a Christian?" He says, "Well, to just be honest with you, I don't really see the need in my life. I don't really see why I'd need it. I'm a pretty good person. I'm moral by myself. I don't need church. I don't need God, man." Can I just tell you when I heard him say that, my just my heart sunk. My heart sunk because you know what the most dangerous place is for anybody to be? The most dangerous place for you to be is for you to think that you don't need God. The most dangerous place for anybody to be is to think that they don't need God. And I think we live in such a busy, such a successful, such a wealthy area that it's so easy to think that we don't need God because we got it all together. But the fact is that a rich man that doesn't know God, is a whole lot more poor than a poor man that does know God. You see, just because you might have all the riches or you know, have a good job or be successful, doesn't mean you have all you need. Life is so much more than those things. And it's easy to think that we have all we need because of all the things that we have, because of all the things that we've Achieved. But when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, how much you've achieved. When it comes down to it, we all need God the same. We all need the same Savior. And so I want to close with this. I just want to close in two minutes. Um, but none of us are 100% humble. I mean, if we all took you know a humility test, none of us would score 100%. I know if I scored, I don't know what my percentage level would be, but it probably wouldn't be in the 90s, probably not even the 80s, and probably not in the 70s either. Um, But if we all took that humility test, none of us would score perfectly. And I want to close by talking about what I think and what I know is the most extraordinary example of humility ever. The only person that ever, if he took the humility test, would pass with 100%. And that's Jesus. Because Jesus, being in the very nature of God, never had to humble himself. He, Him to say, hey, I'm in control. I got it all covered. That's not him you know, being prideful. That's just true. Jesus is God. He got it all under control. He can do whatever he wants, right? I mean, all the miracles. Water into wine. Healing lepers. Healing sick people. Raising dead people to life. Yeah, there's nothing, you know, he's like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm all right. It's like, no, He's God. But what did He do? He humbled Himself to the point of becoming fully God and fully human and didn't stop there, but was willing to humiliate Himself on the cross for our sake, for your sake. Jesus humbled Himself by humiliating Himself on the cross, taking on the beating for our sins, taking on the shame for our sins. Jesus did that for you. That perfect, extraordinary example of humility was for you. And so that if you trust in Him and believe in Him, that you could be forgiven and free of all your sin and all your shame, past, present, and future, doesn't matter how big, how small it is. And it's through Jesus' extraordinary example of humility that I think we could begin to experience healing in our own lives. I want to say that again because I think it's important. It's through Jesus' example of humility that you could begin to experience healing in your life. It's only when you get to the point in your life where you continually look to the cross for healing and continually look to the cross to become more humble because all the stuff we've been talking about today... All right, you, you know, worshiping a God that can't be controlled, you know, having humility in your heart, all those things, they're very good, virtuous, amazing things. But I'll just tell you from personal experience, it's impossible for you to attain it and achieve it yourself. It can't happen. The only way that you can attain that kind of humility is if you allow Jesus' humility to heal you. You continually look to the cross and realize that that's, where we see the place where we can become humble. Because that's the place where we realize that if it wasn't for the cross, we would be lost. If it wasn't for Jesus going down into the river and picking us up when we were drowning, we'd be lost. It's at the cross where we realize that we all humbly need God the same. And so, what I want to leave with you guys today is I want to... Dare you guys, if I can, if I could dare you guys, to be humble enough to receive the healing that only comes through the humiliation that Jesus endured on the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you so much that you loved us enough to humble yourself, to die for us, for our sins, in our place so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and uh, have a relationship with you. And so, God, I just pray uh, right now for every single person in this room that uh, each person would just more and more look to how loving and kind you are and how you humbled yourself on the cross. And that it would be through your strength and through your power and through what you've done that each person in this room would begin to live a more humble life before you and others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.